Welcome to Restoring Reality Part 2 with Drs. Robert J. Lifton and Stephen Soltz. We've invited them back to discuss the COVID crisis and to expand the ideas discussed in Part 1. Be sure to listen to Part 1 if you haven't already. We also wanted to let you know that Part 2 was safely recorded from our homes. Enjoy. Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Welcome back, Robert and Stephen. We're delighted to have you with us again to reflect on our previous conversation in the context of the current crisis. Yes, we seem to have moved from being consumed by Trump to being consumed by the coronavirus, and it's a different world. The one thing I would start off saying is that we talked, and I emphasized, Trump's solipsistic reality and how that entailed his capacity to respond to anything only in terms of the self and its needs, which of course meant falsifying reality. Now with the coronavirus, the situation changes because this is an organic matter. People are sick and dying and they're identified. And those who step in now as authorities we seek are the doctors, especially the specialists in public health and in epidemiology. And Trump's solipsistic reality undergoes something of a breakdown. It cannot in any sense sustain itself in the face of these organic truths. Well, Stephen, did you want to add to that first? Well, I think one of the features that we're seeing now, it's just much clearer than it was before, is how dangerous the um, falsifying of reality is. You know, the United States is now responsible for nearly one third of the cases and one quarter of the deaths in the entire world when we have a 4% of the world's population. This is at least partly due to denial of reality by Trump, but not only, also by Democratic, the mayor of New York and the governor of New York, who also did not listen to experts early on and thereby led to this, the extent of this crisis. And we remains to be seen what will happen ongoing as there's competing pressures between the public health perspective and those pressuring to open up the economy no matter what. Yes. And it's a really anxious time for for the country. And I've seen the similarities between the virus and its invisibility and the fear of that invisibility parallels with what I heard in Hiroshima from survivors of the first atomic bomb in connection with what I came to call invisible contamination which, of course, stemmed from radiation effects which couldn't be seen or in any way perceived and could suddenly attack people, even those who had seemed to be unaffected by the bomb. So there is that parallel. 
I'm wondering if, because we can't point to something, it's somehow easier to undermine reality. Reality is firmer in a sense. The reality of the effects of the virus, its contagion and its causing illness and causing deaths, those realities can't be denied. There are lots of attempts to deny them. Trump and Trumpism seek to deny them or at least minimize them, but they can't be fully denied because they're clearly present as organic truths. But then the point you were making, our own reality in ordinarily safe lives, our expectation of being able to conduct ordinary existence without threat, all that is gone. And that's a very different reality that I think all of us, those of us talking here today, are subjected to. Mm-hmm. We, we find ourselves in a reality that we don't quite grasp. It seems to me that this crisis has a dual character. One, as Robert is saying, it can't be denied. And the polls show that the vast majority of people in this country are taking it fairly seriously. But at the same time, it's not present every moment. And we're forced to live in this weird dual world of taking precautions for something that we can't see that's in some level hypothetical. That's very true. It's a very important point. And with it goes our own uncertainty about what precautions to take. I find myself saying, it's important to take absurd precautions, meaning doing things that seem absurd but might be appropriate in our present situation. But nobody knows how appropriate they are. Mm -hmm. And I think the coronavirus joins in a certain sense with nuclear weapons and climate change as having apocalyptic possibilities and yet not being present for us at every moment. And it's a very uneasy consequence. And it seems as though, like those other two crises, it makes us have to place a much higher value on tolerating uncertainty. Yes. And I'm not sure many of us have succeeded. Mm -hmm. There's always some remaining unease about the uncertainty and about the danger we're in, we have no choice but to, as you say, live with uncertainty. But it's a special kind because it's potentially fatal and it's so extremely widespread. We also feel the inadequacy of our social and international arrangements there, our inability of our leaders, certainly, and of many others to cope with such an extreme threat. And that has a lot to do with the way we live and the way we structured authority and the way that authorities lived out or didn't live out their responsibilities prior to the virus. It seems that we're being challenged in another way that I don't completely understand. There's this great pressure to reopen the economy. 
And yet, every expert who looks at it has proposed fairly similar steps that need to be taken to do that safely. What's so striking is that the same people who are so adamant about reopening the economy are fighting taking these steps and are thereby acting destructive to what appears to be their own interests. Yes, and in that way, the tragic situation develops in which the response to a world-threatening virus becomes politicized and narrowly self-serving, or what is thought to be self-serving, and that's disastrous. And that, in a sense, stems from patterns that developed prior to the virus, and some of them have to do with anti-elitism, anti-science, and nativism, which are large forces in the society long predating Trump and now emerging or re-emerging in connection with Trump. And this is the kind of situation we're in now. And I think our own anxiety is notably increased by the not only the, the absolute lack of leadership, but also by the destructive pseudo-leadership of, the, of Trump and Trumpites, as in his embracing remedies that can be dangerous or don't exist or are quite absurd in themselves. I think there's another related dilemma that we face that I wanted to caution about, which we've talked a lot about the importance of paying attention to reality and science and scientists and experts as sort of representative of that reality. But there's another side to that as well. There's been a long critique of experts as not necessarily being expert in the social implications of their actions. Expertise and reality are not always the same. I completely agree with that. And I've come to resist the use of the word expert. I don't like the word expert. I think we do better to speak of authorities because authorities, if one has authority, genuine authority, that assumes that one has the right to pronounce versions of reality as opposed to self-styled experts who have no such actual authority authority based on true knowledge and experience. And it is a tension for the society. What Stephen is talking about has sometimes been called scientism or the worship of science, which could often eliminate or fail to take into account human behavior or human emotions. And right now, we need genuine authority, and I think that with a threat that is so organic and medical and potentially deadly, there is a natural tendency or almost an immediate tendency to seek authority from doctors and scientists. And that has to be balanced, as Stephen says, and there is also the countervailing tendency on the part of those who are reluctant to face or take 
necessary steps in connection with the virus, a sense of antagonism toward any governing process in the name of what's called freedom. But one thing that's interesting and hopeful is that the polls show a very heavy majority of Americans have listened to the medical authorities. I think COVID problematizes the role of the witnessing professional, as you're describing the the kind of tension about scientism and anti-elitism, and yet the need to depend on these elite opinions. The witnessing professionals are really dramatic in this situation, especially those working in the emergency rooms and directly with coronavirus patients. The president can hold sway about all the brilliant things he's done and all the mass he's had produced and all the tests, wonderful tests he's created. And these men and women whose lives are at stake are trying to heal others, but also tell the world that this equipment is not there, that it's a terrible lack of preparation that they work in. They are witnessing professionals who make known, who make clear the malignant normality being claimed by the president and being set in place by the president, and then take action against that malignant normality, which becomes heroic because their lives are in danger. So you couldn't find a place where witnessing professionals are more important. Absolutely. I wanted to pivot back to a theme I was hearing develop. This experience that we're all undergoing of having to tolerate immense amounts of uncertainty, a very groundless place. If both of you could speak to this idea of what is it that you do, what is it that you believe is most beneficial for us in terms of how do we anchor ourselves in some sense of a balanced reality, given these tensions and conflicts, while we're trying to tolerate such immense uncertainty, and as you pointed out, where our mortality is involved? I think that there is no one path for everybody. Some of us, I'm one of those people who is absorbed in the news. I have to know what's going on. I read incessantly. I'm trying to understand the latest developments from the public health angle, from the medical angle. Other people, not so much. And I think each of us has to find some balance between letting in as much reality as we can deal with while also taking care of ourselves, paying attention to other aspects of life. But I also think it's it's incumbent upon those of us intellectuals to try and siphon through the huge mass of information to try and figure out what is real in that and what are some of the underlying themes that we can try and communicate to others. Mm -hmm. Robert? Yes, I would agree. And I think there's a kind of a general idea or theme that's positive for people. And while, as Stephen says, people vary in their capacity to deal with reality and what kind of reality, still in connection with most of the extreme events that I've studied, when people have to cope with them, they do best when they're given 
a clear sense of reality mm-hmm. because it becomes even more frightening when the reality is covered over and the fear becomes greater. For instance, in Holocaust survivors and their children, many of the survivors would speak not at all about their experience because they wanted to protect their children from those dreadful events. But the result was that the children became ever more anxious because of recognizing that something very dreadful that was not even to be spoken about had occurred. Mm -hmm. And with patients who are quite ill or even dying, studies that have been done on them tend to show that they do better when they're told something like the truth, which they're hungry for. In any case, I think people need leaders who tell the truth about this virus and what it does and also emphasize what can be done to diminish its effects and what individuals can do in concrete ways. And the leaders also need to show empathy. And I think we all need a quality of empathy, which is certainly evoked from us when we watch brave and crucial efforts by doctors and health professionals to help people who come down with the virus. So empathy is an enormous dimension required all through the society, and that in turn requires what we're not getting at all, a quality of mourning, of recognizing the loss in the society. Yeah, there's something really powerful that can happen in shared recognition of awful truths. That actually is ameliorative. I think that's what you're saying. I think memorializing brings people together. It links people who've been separated in this isolation period. So it will be a very healing thing when we finally get to that point. And we can recognize as psychologists the terrible difficulty of memorializing with the coronavirus. Nobody can be there given the nature of arrangements when somebody dies. It's the doctor who has to serve as a family member to see the dying person through to death. And that's another burden. There aren't the ordinary structures of death and dying with funeral homes and with the rituals we go through are under duress. It's also important for us to recognize that this crisis is also called attention to the central role in our lives of people that we don't usually pay much attention to, who are not professionals, that we absolutely depend on those people who work in those grocery stores and risk their lives every day for terrible pay and often poor conditions. The people who deliver food, who are trucking food, who are growing that food, that we all depend absolutely on them, though we don't often pay much attention to their existence. Yes, that's very true. Uh, And then among those who serve us and make it possible for us to get our food supplies and other supplies are people who are conflicted about whether they're safe in doing it or whether they can afford not to do it, given their economic duress and the economic level on which they live. So 
it brings out again, as any catastrophe does, the inequality of people in society and how this kind of disaster hits hardest those of lower economic and social status. It's very marked. Well, it's interesting, too, how that casts a new light on activism, right? We see occasionally, for instance, the Amazon workers were protesting their conditions. And yet at the same time, it's difficult to protest because people are on lockdown. And so it seems like there's going to have to be some kind of creative evolution in the ways we can take activist stances in the face of this crisis. I wonder if either of you have thoughts about that. Well, for some, remember, Amazon workers, Trader Joe's, Costco, and it's interesting that the last two, two of the so-called good employers, have been strongly fighting unionization efforts among their employees who are upset both about the uh, pay, but more so about the lack of concern by the employers to their health conditions. It's not so different for them because they're at work. They can use a traditional tool, strike, to Mm -hmm. withhold their effort. In fact, they have greater influence now than they usually have because there aren't as many other places to go do your shopping. And we see that starting to happen. Others, that's a great question, and I haven't really figured out (laughs) what form it is. I mean, we, we have this weird thing in our society that activism for Many for the last 10 or 15 years has been signing online petitions, which usually seem to be as much about getting names for mailing lists as about actually influencing policy from anybody. So the online connection has been sort of a false form of activism in various ways. And I don't think we know yet. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the problems with activism now has to do with the loss of the prior loss of influence and power of unions in general. When I was younger, I can remember unions as being central to defending the rights of workers in every single sphere and always at odds with the corporate interests. Since then, through a combination of elements, including attacks by corporate interests, along with corruption in certain unions, they lost their influence. And the workers in various fields lost their collective capacity to organize and come together in their own, on behalf of their own interests. And I think that absence is being felt now and is hurtful But it's also possible that there'll be a revival of union influence in general in the recognition that it's necessary for the protection of people who don't have a high standing in society as working people. If workers, whether through unions or some other mechanism, were more intimately involved in these workplaces and in helping set policy, I think we would have a lot less conflict because in some cases, lack of health actions may be because the employers are legitimately trying to get materials and can't. But because information and responsibility isn't shared, that's not felt by workers there. 
who then feel that they're ignored and betrayed. It, it's also true in this regard that I think unions and workers, like everyone else, have to find a way of organizing on a partial model of the unions in the past, but altered by social media. Still, unions which see themselves as expressing the interests of individual workers, but doing so in a society where every kind of image can be put out to hundreds of thousands or even millions of people by a, a single robotic pushing of a button, so to speak. It's a new era in which unions have to find their way. I think what you're both saying and what we've all been thinking about together today is the ways in which the COVID crisis is not just a healthcare crisis and not just an economic crisis, but it's also a crisis for our culture. And there may be quite a bit of destruction in the culture as well that we will have to evolve past and invent new ways. And I'm, I'm thinking about Jonathan Lear, the psychoanalyst writing about the Crow Indians and how they had to evolve new cultural forms in response to being sent to the reservations. And maybe we're living at one of those inflection points for our own Western culture as well. And it's beyond this episode to talk about that. But hopefully we will come back together and consider the future as well as the present and the past in another episode. I like to say, and we have to, despite everything, live in hope. You don't need a religion. You can be a completely secular person and still evoke and seek avenues of hope. And the element of hope has to be nurtured one to the other, as I think is happening, but it's always a struggle. Another aspect of hope could be that this crisis has a chance of having us reevaluate the role of consumerism in our lives and in society. And we discover we can do without some of those goods for a period, and maybe they're just not as important as other aspects of our lives, like the relationships that we miss so much. Right. Okay. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop for today. We really appreciate your joining us and the important things you've shared with us and our audience. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.